You are about to listen to the four components to a complete teshuva from the Hilchus Teshuva Bootcamp. This is part seven of the lost art of teshuva. All of the schmoozin as well as many series that deal with real life issues are available on the schmooze.com or on the schmooze app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol Halashon 718-906-6461. One of the greatest Jews who ever lived was a Tana by the name of Elisha Benavuya. Elisha Benavuya was one of the great Manhigim, one of the great Torah sages, and he was one of the ultimate tzaddikim in his time. Well, that's how he began his career. That's not quite how he ended it. The Gemara in Chagiga tells us that there were four who were There were four individuals who went up who were zochet to see Hashem as much as any human being can. Those four were Ben Azai, Ben Zomer, Elisha Minavu, and Rabbi Kiva. And the Gemara also tells us that three out of the four did not come back intact. Rabbi Kiva alone was the one who went, Nichnas B'Shalom went in, in peace, left in peace. He went as far as any human being can and returned. The other three did not fate as well. And in particular, Elisha Minavuya became an Apikoris. He saw something in Shemayim that brought a question to him, and when he came down, he was a changed human being, a different sort of person. To the extent that he gave up Judaism, he gave up the Torah, he gave up all of Vodas Hashem, and it was Yom Kippur, and a Baskol came out. A Baskol came out decrying, Shuvu Vanim Shovuvim, all of my children can return. Chutz and Elisha Minavuya, with the exception of Elisha Minavuya. It happened to have been that he was riding on a horse right near the base of Migdish. When he heard that Baskol, it was again Yom Kippur, it was Shabbos. And he said the words, In that case, if I have nothing left in the world to come, then I might as well enjoy myself in this world. And from that moment, he changed his existence and became a wicked individual. Whenever he accomplished, when he was great, he basically undid when he was bad. And it's almost hard for us to imagine how wicked he became. The events are brought in the Gemara. He became so wicked that when the Romans attempted to get the Jews to be Machal Shabbos, this was when Israel was already under the rule of Rome, and the Romans would gather together work parties on Shabbos, and they would tell the Jews to do various malachas. The Jews did everything in their power to lessen, so that if they could take it down from a deraisa to a derabanan, if two people could do the work, and one person would do it, it lessens it. They would specifically do it that way. The Jews would specifically try not to carry in a rishus harabim. Whatever they did, this Elisha ben Avuya, this Acher, would come to the work sites and tell the Romans, wait, 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 stop that. They're walking through a Carmelist. No, 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 no. Make them walk that way. That's a Rishus Arabim. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Two men are carrying that pole. One could carry it. Stop that. He made sure that the Romans were successful in getting the Jews to violate Shabbos. It got to the point where he would go into the base Medrash in town throughout Israel. And he was still known as Elisha Benavuyu, still known as the Great Tana. And he would walk over to young students learning and say, What are you doing here? Go out, earn a living, become a carpenter. You become a shoemaker. Become a do something with your life. And he would clear out the base medrashes. 
In the end, the Gemara in Yerushalmi tells us that he actually killed with his own hands Talmidei Chachamim. He turned into a life of wickedness, and he became one of the ultimate Rishayim who ever lived. The Masha says he might well have been the greatest Russia who ever lived, because he was Makir Boro. He was the individual who went up to Pardes. He saw Hashem, he was a Tana. For such a person to become such a wicked person is the height of Rishis. And the Marsha says he arguably might have been the worst human being who ever lived. And interestingly enough, the Medrash Rabbah tells us what it was like on his deathbed. You see, during his time of Rishis, the whole class all separated. Everyone left him with one exception, that was Rameyer. Rameyer still remained a loyal Talmud, and Rameyer felt that he could still learn from Acher. And the Medrash tells us that when Acher was clearly going to leave this earth, they sent word to Rameyer, Rameyer, Rabecha Chola, your Rebbe is sickly. Rameyer came running, and at that moment he said to Acher, Rebbe, do tshuva, do tshuva. Acher said, will they still accept me? Rameyer quoted a Pasuk that they'll still accept you in tshuva. At that point, Elisha Meruvuya began crying. Says the Medrash, Rameyer Samach, Rameyer was very happy. It appears to me that Elisha Meruvuya left this earth in tshuva. However, Rameyer was mistaken. Granted, he was crying, but it was not tshuva. He didn't fully repent, and he was not a Baal tshuva. The reason why I'd like to start this particular session, the Hilchah's boot camp, the halachas of tshuva with this particular chazal, because I think it's very, very telling for the subject. And that is because we are dealing with one of the most wicked human beings who ever lived. And yet Reb Meir sits there on his deathbed, sees tears in the eyes of this man, and assumed that he did tshuva and was happy. You may say, rightfully so, who cares? The man was wicked to the core. So in the last moment, his last breath, he cried. He regretted it all. Does that matter? Does that change it all? But apparently what you see from this Gemara is 100% yes. Had in fact, Elisha Mruvoya gotten it at the last moment of his life, despite the fact that he lived for years as a Russia, and despite the fact that he did all that he did, had he really, really gotten it, really reached to the core of his essence and done a total, complete reversal, said to Hashem, I regret bitterly that which I've done that would have eradicated his bad. It would have been a tshuva. He would have been accepted in tshuva. And he would have been a different human being for eternity. The Rambam says, even if a man does tshuva on his deathbed, even if he no longer has the strength to do the as he did, even if he's no longer in that position but he reaches a true understanding that what he did was wrong, and he reaches to the core of his essence, and does a complete tshuva, says the Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva, Ein maskirin lo shumchet, they don't mention any of his averas when he comes to the world to come, they're cleaned, expunged, they're off the record. And again, to me, the reason why this particular Chazal is telling is because we're dealing not just with a simple Russia, I promise you, if you spend your entire lifetime attempting to live up to the wickedness of this human being, you'll never begin to come close, because this was a Tana, this was a Lisha Meruvuya, the man was a Bucky and Shas and Poskin, the man was a leader in the Klaistral, the man reached the height of going into paradise, seeing Hashem as much as any human being can, and for this man to rebel, and not just rebel, to bring the Jewish nation to depths, if this man could do tshuva, 
and Remeir assumed that he could, then I think it's a very, very powerful lesson. And not just tshuva, just on that last moment of deathbed. Apparently, tshuva is a far more powerful force than we recognize. It can change a person. And a lot of times a person may say, listen, after what I've done, after what I've seen, let no human being have the audacity to assume they reach the heights nor the depth of Elisha ben Avuya. And yet he could have done tshuva. And the answer is for all of us, tshuva works. Tshuva works. It can eradicate, take away entire years, things that I've done wrong, take away entire lifestyles that I've been involved in and take it off the record. And that is the power of tshuva. And that is a very powerful, very important concept that a Jew must understand. The Shari Tshuva tells us in his opening statement, he says as follows, One of the great chasadim, one of the great favors that Hashem did with His creation is to prepare for them a derech for tshuva. You see, the bottom line is that Hashem created us with two distinct natures. And Hashem knows that we will fail. That's part of the game. Hashem gave us tests. Hashem gave us desires. Hashem gave us a nefesh Bahami, And Hashem knows that no human being will be perfect. And therefore Hashem also created a system called tshuva. And when a person uses that system, it cleans up, it eradicates, it eliminates whatever I did wrong, and it can take an Elisha ben Avuya and for eternity make him a different human being. And the only thing that's ironic is that for us, it's almost easy to hear. Of course Hashem will forgive me. Listen, isn't Hashem the Av HaRachamim? Isn't Hashem filled with mercy? Doesn't Hashem know my nature? Isn't it obvious that Hashem accepts tshuva? And while this particular illustration of a man being so wicked is maybe moving, but the basic concept isn't foreign to us, and the basic concept resonates within us and, and is easy for us to hear. And what's interesting to note is that historically it wasn't always that way. The Koch Ve'or makes a very, very powerful point. He says, if you study the Nevi'im, Pasuk after Pasuk, Novi after Novi comes and says, no, 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 there's tshuva. Really, really, you can repent. If you really reach down, if you really, really reach to the core of the essence, you can do tshuva. And the Koch Ve'or's point is, do you know why it is that there was such an emphasis on tshuva? He says, because they didn't believe it. The Klai Yisrael could not accept that they really could do tshuva. It took Novi after Novi standing there and saying, no, Hashem will accept you back. If you do tshuva, Hashem will forgive you. There is repentance. And the Kofi is bothered by the question, if we accept tshuva as a given, it's obvious, it's simple, how could it be that people hundreds, thousands of years ago, who clearly were on a higher madrega, much closer to Sinai, much closer to the Sinaiic transmission, how is it possible that we believe in tshuva and they don't? And it's that concept, that question, that I'd like to focus on today. To see if we can understand why it is that earlier generations had a lot of difficulty understanding tshuva, and why for us it's quite simple, it's quite obvious. And let me begin with a very significant point. If you go to a shiva house... Some shiva houses are easier, some are much harder. If it's a shiva house of an older person who died in their time, a 93-year-old woman, while it's always a serious moment, there's a certain yeshuv, there's a certain nachas in the fact that the woman lived a full life, and the tragedy isn't that apparent. What if you go to a shiva house where there are seven young orphans, 
a woman taken in the prime of her life, 38 years old, and you see the little children. You see the husband without direction. You see the children left as orphans. And you feel the immense, immense pain. It's at that point that I think a very key understanding should come to a person's mind. And that is, Misa, death, was not supposed to be. This entity called the human being dying, the entire process of the mourning, bereavement, grieving, tsar, that whole package wasn't supposed to be. It was not in the original master plan. When Hashem created Adam originally, and put Adam in Gan Eden, it was for eternity. The human placed in Gan Eden was supposed to grow, was supposed to accomplish, and live on for eternity. But the reality that we experience now is very different. And it's very, very important to understand what happened and why it is. It's a Medrash Rabbah that's very often quoted. When Hashem created Adam Rishon, not lo. He took him. Hashem took Adam Rishon. Hashem took Adam and showed him all of the beautiful trees of Gan Eden. Hashem said to him, Look how beautiful they are. Look at the beauty. Look at the symmetry. Look at what I've created. How beautiful they are. All that I created is for you. Then Hashem said these words. Pay attention that you don't destroy and ruin my world. What the Mitzvah Shem explains to us is when Hashem created Adam Marisha, and Hashem gave the keys of creation to Adam, this world is dependent upon you. If you use it appropriately, the world becomes stronger, the world fulfills its purpose, the world will have a key and will have existence and sustenance. If not, if you ruin the world, if you use the world inappropriately, if you use your time in the wrong way, not only are you destroying yourself, the world itself is dependent upon you, and you will destroy the world. And the proof in the pudding is, when Adam did one sin, one sin, the world was radically, significantly changed. Adam and Chava ate from the Eitzadas. Because of that, man now has to work. Because of that, there is a Tsar Leda, pain in giving birth. And because of that, there's Misa, there's death in the world. The existence that we now experience has been radically changed. The concept of man working 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day was not part of the master plan. We were supposed to be involved in Ruchnia's growth. We were supposed to be involved in learning and accomplishing, in changing ourselves. All of our material, physical needs were to be met in one single action. One mistake, Adam changed it all, and the future of mankind, the world as we know it, was radically transformed. And the reason for this is because when Hashem created man, Hashem did something that was unprecedented. There were many creations, many malachim, many spheres created before Adam. Adam was the only one given this call called Bahira, called free will, and with it means this ability to change. That I was given the capacity to mold myself, shape myself, to choose Ra, to choose Tov, to make that choice. 
But it wasn't just that Adam, man, was given free choice. The world was created for the purpose of man. That world is dependent upon man. Man uses his time appropriately, chooses well. He reaches heights and the world gets its kium. But if not, then the opposite is true. And it is a very, very telling result. One man, one action, the world is changed. And the reality is that this concept is basic to our religion. It's a Mishnah in Sanhedrin that needs to be fully, fully felt, said over and over and felt. And that Mishnah says, Bishvili nivra adam ha'olam. For me, the world was created, but it's not just that chayav adam loma. A man is obligated to say the words, for me and me alone, Hashem would have created the whole world. And the Mishnah explains, why is it that Hashem created the world in a very unusual way? Why is it that Hashem created two people, Adam and Chavim began the world that way. By all rights, Hashem should have created 600,000. The entire Jewish nation should have been created, put at the base of our Sinai. That should have been the first moment of creation, says the Mishnah for one important lesson. That every human being should understand that Hashem created the whole world. The heavens, the earth, the sky, the sun, the river, the stars, and all that is contained within this world for one human being. And the lesson that we're supposed to take for that is, I too am a human being. Hashem created the entire cosmos for Adam Arishon, and I too am a human, just as Hashem felt fit, that it was worthy to create the whole world for just that one man, so too a Jew is obligated to say the words Hashem would have created the whole world for me alone. Hashem created one man, Yechidi, one man alone, to teach us this lesson that we all should remember and understand that Hashem would have created the entire world for I and I alone. And it's not just words, it's a concept that has a real fulfillment. In the case of Adam Rishon, meant potentially the world itself being on his shoulders. And when a Jew begins to understand life on a different plane, he understands that there are many, many worlds that are dependent on me. Little me, little insignificant, unimportant me, have a very real place in this world. And if a person studies even a tad of what goes on in the upper worlds, he quickly understands that there are many olomos, many worlds that are dependent upon me. If a person opens an Efeshachayim and sees descriptions of entire worlds dependent on my actions for the good or for the bad, that I am created, if it could be, in the role of Bore, in the role of a mini-creator. When it says Hashem created Adam, Man betzelem lukim. Hashem is ultimately the creator, and Hashem made many, many worlds dependent upon man. Whether we relate to these concepts, whether we understand these concepts, Chazal tell us they're true, and they're a reality. And even if, typically, it's difficult for us to relate to this, and even, even if in a normal setting, it's hard for us to feel this, I'd like to share with you one simple observation to bring this point home. Imagine the following. Imagine you have a good guy, a guy who's working hard, married, seven kids. He doesn't leave the house without making sure he heads first to the minion, then to the daf, works hard, makes sure he pays full tuition, supports many sadakas, and he really, really is dedicated to being a good guy. As it turns out, things turn, his business takes a nosedive, 
one bad decision leads to another bad decision. Before you know it, he's bankrupt. He's absolutely without a plan or a clue. And he comes to Shul on Shabbos, depressed, unbelievably. Hidam in Shachris, and then comes Musaf time, he's just so despondent, so broken, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He walks outside, and he's a sabrach and a mensch. He sees somebody passing, and he would never do this, but he's so broken, he says, do me a favor, can I get a, can I have a cigarette? And he bums a cigarette, and he's about to light it, and somebody says, stop it, Shabbos! Somebody says, ah, come on, leave me alone, I can't handle it anymore, I can't handle it, and he smokes a cigarette on Shabbos. Okay. Bad day, bad decision, but understandable. What is the halacha in that case? The halacha in that case, and there is no disputing this, is that he is chayev misa. He has lost his lease on life. If a Jew intentionally violates Shabbos, the chayev skila. There's no discussion, there's no debate, there's no other opinion. That is a halacha mufurish. If Beisdin was in power, if the base of Mikdash was built, he would be paskind, Adim with a sraw, it's all over. He would lose his lease on life. He'd be taken out to be killed. And you may ask, it doesn't seem to be fair. A good guy, bad day, bad decision at best. But come on, isn't the Torah being overly, I mean, isn't it exaggerated? All he did was smoke a cigarette one time, and you're telling me his wife is to be left a widow? Kids and orphan? What about all the tzedakah that he gives? What about all the poor people that he helps? What about all the chesed that he does? You're telling me everything that he's done is eradicated, cut out because of one little cigarette on Shabbos? It doesn't seem that the punishment fits the crime. But this question really gets even worse when you study other things. If you study the fact that the Jew violates a single losa say, and I don't even mean eating McDonald's, and I don't even mean wearing shatnas. By all rights, if a Jew were to speak a word of Lashon Hara, except for technicality, that is a full losasei, and a Jew would get one punishment for all the losaseis, and that is malchus, that is public whipping. <clears throat> and if you open the Gemara in Makkas, and you study the very graphic, clear descriptions, you'll see it is not just a little kind of light sort of beating. They take a man in front of all of his town, and they strip off his shirt, and there's a doctor on hand to make sure that he can withstand the blows. And then they take a very particular whip, and it's graphically described in Marcos how to build the whip, how to design it. And the man lifts it up, and it's described how high he has to lift it, and how hard he has to bring it down. And he's whipped time after time, time after time, until he can no longer sustain it, or they reach that number 39. But that public whipping an unbelievable embarrassment, an unbearable pain, for what? For a single losa, say, one lav in the Torah? Again, it seems that the Torah is way, way out of proportion here. The punishment clearly doesn't fit the crime. And if you'll tell me, it's true, maybe the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Maybe it's preventative. For instance, in the United States of America, if a man breaks into someone's store at night. Let's imagine Ruvain's having a tough time making the, uh, his mortgage payments. He breaks into a store at night and steals $500 cash. He gets caught. He's arrested. He's tried. He's convicted. He's now sentenced to 20 years in prison. Everyone will agree that the $500 
does not weigh equally against 20 years in prison. But you see, the 20 years in prison is not punitive, it's corrective, it's preventive. The idea is we have to have very, very strong punishments to make sure other people don't do it. If you're going to say you just have to pay back the money you steal, then people are going to steal left and right. To have a punishment on the books that people will fear, or if you're very liberal, to have a corrective time to allow a person to fully understand his mistakes. You have to have a punishment that clearly doesn't fit the crime. It's not equal, but it's to prevent others from doing it. But here is a very, very key observation. The punishments in the Torah are not preventative. They are not prohibitions that are punished to prevent others from doing it. Rather, all of the punishments in the Torah are machaper. That means they're curative. What that means is they're things needed to clean up the Avera. What that means is, the Torah is saying, when a person violates Shabbos, the seriousness of that hate is so powerful that the kapara that he needs, not so other people should look at it and say, I better not do the same, not to prevent somebody from doing it, but the damage of the sin that he did is so great that the only kapara, the only retribution that can clean up the sin that he did from the damage that he did to himself is death. If a man spoke Lashonara except for that technicality, that it doesn't have a Misa, but certainly if a person ate Trafe one time, a person was shot in his one time, a person cut his payas, the punishment that fits the crime is being publicly whipped. Not to prevent others, not to stop me from doing it in the future, but that's the kapara, that's the retribution needed because that's the extent of the crime. And the question is, my high, it doesn't seem to make sense. After all said and done, the Torah is filled with rachamim, with mercy. Shem created the whole world with mercy. And everything we read about the Torah is mercy, rachmanis, feeling a person's pain. And yet we see such harsh punishments. And the reason why we have difficulty understanding the extent of the Avera, and therefore understanding the punishments due, is because we are spaced out to A, the greatness of a human, and therefore B, the gravity of a person's actions. To us, it's whatever he did do, he didn't do, he did say, he didn't say, Shabbos, not Shabbos, it doesn't really matter. And that's because we have very physical eyes, we're locked into a world of physicality, and we fail to understand the gravity of the issues that we're involved in. We fail to perceive the greatness of the human, we fail to perceive how much Hashem made dependent upon us, and therefore how much our actions, our deeds, affect myself and affect the world at large. And if you'd like a mushal, what I believe is an apt parable for this, imagine the following. For decades, the United States of America and the USSR were locked in a cold war. And this war was being waged in a very, very high scale, and it often looked very tenuous. There were moments when the world as we know it could have ceased to exist because each one made sure that they had missiles pointed at each other's capitals. And if you remember the basic concept, the basic concept was that for every missile the United States had, Russia had another one. So the USSR had 10 missiles pointed at Washington, and then there were 10 missiles pointed at the Kremlin. 
if the USSR had 100 missiles pointed at Seattle, Washington, so there were 100 missiles pointed at a city in the USSR, the balance of power was waged by the fact that each superpower knew that utter total destruction could be brought about by one beginning this war. Now, during this time period, there was something called the Strategic Air Command. SAC was the part of the Air Force that was given the responsibility that if at any time Russia were to begin this world war, if ever a nuclear bomb were to explode in a United States city, these bombers were to be ready to drop equal amounts of bombs on the Russian counterparts. SAC always had bombers in the air. What that means is, in case the Russians bombed the air bases, there had to always be airplanes in the air, and the Strategic Air Command had a constant revolving plane system where there'd be always planes in air with enough nuclear force to destroy much of Russia. And that was the Strategic Air Command. Of course, all of this was dependent upon the President of the United States of America. He was the one who was given the code He was the one who, for a long time, had what was known as the red phone. The red phone meant that if you were to press in these buttons, these codes, into the phone, it would effectively send the SAC Strategic Air Command to attack Russia, and the war would be over. Interestingly enough, Ronald Reagan, when he first came to power, used to joke about the fact that as president, he never carried a wallet, never carried a credit card, never carried cash, but he always had to have this plastic laminated card which had the codes because he had six minutes from the time that he was informed of a nuclear attack on the United States of America. He would call in the counterpart within a six-minute window. That was a time period to make that decision whether to effectively end the war, end the world. Now, imagine for a minute the following. Imagine that Ronald Reagan is uh, there as a president, two years into power, And Nancy's having a bad day, and she starts ragging on him, and she starts screaming, and she starts yelling, and she throws dishes. And Ronald says, that's enough, I had it! This is out of it! He picks up the red phone, call him in, blow up Moscow, I've had it with the world, blow it up! Strategic Air Command is commanded, they in fact drop bombs on Moscow, Moscow then retaliates, the world ceases to exist. Okay. Now, can you blame the man? He was having a bad day. His wife was ragging on him. Maybe they were fighting for years, for all you know. He was really, really under a lot of pressure. You know, being president's not that easy. He had a tough job. His ratings were going down. They were starting to make fun of him. And his wife no longer respected him. And he really was having a bad day. Can anybody really hold him responsible? Now, clearly, that's a muscle. (laughs) But the point of the muscle is that there are some things that there are no excuses for. Blowing up the world is not something that we say, listen, he's having a bad day. And I don't care how liberal you are, I don't care how forgiving you are of others' mistakes, there are certain things that are considered so egregious, that are so vile, evil, that there is no excuse. Blowing up the world is included in that. The problem that we face is that we view big deal things like blowing up the world as crimes, killing, really pulling out a gun and shooting somebody dead, that's a crime. But everything else that we do is whatever. It's not a big deal. But I think the eye-opening concept that the Torah is revealing to us is that that's a lack of understanding of the human. If we understood what it is that Hashem created us to be, 
if we understood the magnitude of the human potential, if we understood how much Hashem made dependent upon us, we would understand that our actions, our thoughts, our deeds are powerful. If there are worlds dependent upon me and I blow it, it's not a little thing. It's not like, hey, whatever, bad day. You destroyed worlds. Do you know what you did? And while we don't get it, every once in a while we can wake up and perceive the gravity from looking at the Torah. When the Torah says a good guy, a good person, who violates Shabbos one time, has lost his lease on life, it's not because the Torah is cruel, it's not because the Torah is harsh, it's because that's the gravity of that action. If you understood Shabbos, if you understood what Shabbos meant, when a Jew keeps the Shabbos, it's ke'ilu, it's as if he made the world, the Jews make Shabbos, what that means is when a Jew keeps Shabbos, he's testifying to the creation of the world, he's being a partner with Hashem in the world, he's changing the very fabric of existence. We don't view it that way. To us it's whatever. But the Torah is revealing to us that life is a bit different than that. And every once in a while, we recognize what it is that we're held accountable for. What the human is capable of, what a human can really accomplish, and then we have a whole different understanding of things. And then, when a human being begins to understand this, the greatness of the human, and therefore the gravity of the situation, then they come to the following understanding. I blew it. I did a sin. A sin is a major, terrible issue. It's not a little thing. It's a major, big deal. And the Kochleor explains the reason why the Nevi'im, the prophets had to come and tell the Jewish people that this tshuva is because the Jewish people didn't believe that you could undo what you've done. After what I've done. After what I've said, how is it possible to eradicate it? How could it be undone? It wasn't that they were smaller than we, they were much greater than we are. They understood what their actions meant. They understood the change in the world based on their actions, their words. And therefore they couldn't believe that there's a concept of tshuva. How could you undo what you've done? You changed the world. And the Mesut Shah makes this even more clear. He says, even we can understand that tshuva cannot make sense. He brings a very powerful point. He says, if a man has an affair with a married woman... The child that comes out from that union is a mamzer. If a man pulls out a gun and shoots someone dead, the human is dead. Let's assume, after doing these type of acts, a man wakes up and says, What have I done? An affair. Cheated. I killed a man. What, am I, what was I thinking? And he really, really does tshuva. He comes to shul and he really claps al and he cries bitter, bitter tears and he fully, fully understands that all that he did was wrong. So what happens? Now the mom's a child is no longer in the world. The 18-year-old ceases to exist. The human that he killed now comes back to life. Says Mr. Sharmi, if you think about it, of course tshuva makes no sense. You did the act. The act is done. How could you undo what you've done? And it's not just major crimes. If a Jew did a single act, spoke a single word, that leaves a roshan, that leaves an impact, changes him, changes the world, big deal. You woke up and on Yom Kippur, you clapped al and you said, Hashem, I feel terrible, I feel bad. So what? 
the action is still there, the results are still there, you feel bad, that's nice, but it doesn't eradicate what you've done. And the Koch explains to us that when a person begins to understand life in a different way, they quickly understand that tshuva doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense at all. And I remember this very vividly as a young person in yeshiva, my first year base Medrash, and Elul was a very moving time. And I remember really, my chevra, the guys my age were getting into things, and I remember vividly Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, you'd look around, it was a different room. The guys in my shir, we took it much more seriously, we were davening very appropriately with real kavana. Then I looked around a little bit more, and I saw what within the older guys, the more base managers guys have been learning for a few years already, were much more serious than my chevra. When you got to the kolo guys, you saw already tears in their eyes. When you got to the best of the kolo guys, you saw guys breaking down, crying, crying. And as you went up the ranks, there was more and more emotion. I remember seeing certain rebeim that you thought that they needed boxes and boxes of Kleenex. And I remember then it was a certain anomaly. It was unbalanced. If anything... The younger guys in the base of had a lot more to repent. The people who were there bitterly, bitterly crying were in a much higher madrega. They were living a much more pure life. And I knew them very well. And it didn't fit. But that's exactly the point. The more human being understands what his potential really is, the more human being understands why Hashem put me on this planet, the more human being can understand the gravity of my actions. And once I really, really get it, once I really understand what it is that I was created for and what it is I can accomplish, then I can begin to understand the tremendous damage done by a sin. And then I could start discussing tshuva. There are many times when I think of the alchets. And if you don't spend a lot of time thinking about these concepts, you assume that the alchets were written for a different type of people. I mean, these are sinners. This sin and that sin and that sin. Oh my goodness, these are horrible people that we'll be discussing over here. <laughs> Not me. But great people. The Rashbam, the Rambam, the Balitosis, all of the greats of the world said those very same words. Amoroim said them, Tanoim said them. These are part of our nation. And the greater the person, the more they felt it, not because they were greater sinners, but because they understood more intensely the greatness of the human, the potential of the human, and thereby the tremendous damage that a human does if they didn't do what they were supposed to. I think there is a tremendous lesson to learn for Acher once you're ready for the lesson. The lesson is when you spend a lot of time, hopefully during Elul, and certainly during Aser Shemei Tshuva, and then on Yom Kippur, beginning to understand the greatness of a human being. And when you really, really dig deeply and understand what it is that I could accomplish, you begin to get an eye glimpse into the damage that I've done. You begin to understand what a tremendous, tremendous chesed this thing called Tshuva is. When you see an Odom Arishon, one man, one time sinning, and the world changes. When you go to a shiva house and you say, this shouldn't be, death shouldn't be, the concept of working hard for a living shouldn't be, tsar the birth pang shouldn't be there. The whole life as we know it shouldn't be. One man, one sin changed the world. You begin to understand what free will is. 
When Hashem created the world, He gave the keys to Adam Rishon and said, It's your world. Do with it what you feel is appropriate. Pay careful attention, not to destroy my world, because it's not just the human. It's the world itself that's dependent on the human. And Chazal tell us it's not a single person. It's not merely Adam Rishon, it's every human. The reason Hashem created Adam as one person is to teach every one of us a lesson that Hashem would have created the whole world for us, for me alone, because every single human being alone is important enough, significant enough to have created the whole world for. And with that comes a dramatic responsibility. The greatness of a human, and therefore the tremendous, tremendous gravity of one's actions. The problem that we have is we don't relate to it. We don't understand it. We're brought up in a society where I'm okay, you're okay. How much can we expect from any single person? We're, you know, as long as I'm not a too much of a slum rat, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. That's all right. You know, I'm doing okay. You have to understand, based on my circumstances, based on where I'm coming from, based on my background, you have to understand. And while it's true that there's a tremendous amount of understanding in the Torah, there's also a tremendous understanding of the greatness of a human, of the potential of a human, and therefore, how much Hashem said is dependent upon you. Upper worlds, lower worlds, your life itself. When a human being begins to get that, there is a tremendous sense of what did I do? How could I stand in front of Hashem and ask forgiveness after I've done that? That huge, huge sin, that serious, powerful Avera, I'm going to say the words, I'm sorry, and what's going to happen? Now it's going to be eliminated? It's going to be like the action was never done. And I did it not once, not ten times, hundreds of times, over and over. I did that Avera and that Avera and many more. I'm a chote, I'm a horrible sinner. And when a human being really gets to that level of understanding, that's when it's time for them to bring out Acher. And it's time for them to bring out that image of a great man, far greater than I'll ever be. A Tana. A man who reached the heights of Kedusha, and a man who reached the depth of depravity, a man who became a Rosh Amrusha, a man who the Marsha said, there may never have been a more wicked human being. Take all of the wicked human beings in the world, at the end of the day, they didn't fully see Hashem. This man saw Hashem. And yet, he, on his deathbed, was crying, and Rameir was happy. Why was he happy? Because he assumed that Ached did tshuva, and had in fact Ached done tshuva, he would have been a changed human being, as the Rambam says, they mentioned nothing of his sins. Had he really, really reached a total different understanding, had he reached a real level of harata, of remorse and regret, he would have been changed forever. He didn't. But had he, that was the power. And in fact, the Masha tells us there is only one real mistake that Acha made. His mistake was not when he went into the base medrashas and told the Bahram, get out of here, go make a living. Not when he told the Romans how to get the Jews to violate Shabbos. Not even when he killed the Tamir Chom. That was not his major mistake. His major mistake is when he came down and was riding on that horse, on Yom Kippur, on Shabbos. And he heard that baskol, he heard that heavenly voice say, Shuvu vanim shovim alishim Return, my children, return, except for Alishim He made one critical error. He failed to be medayik. He failed to perceive exactly what the Paschal was saying. You see, the Pasuk, Shuvu Vanim Shovim, means you take a little step. 
You take one little step forward, Hashem promises, I'll do the rest. I'll push you from behind. You make one little opening, I'll open it wide. Hashem promises a tremendous amount of siyat Hashem. I just step forward and I'll do the rest. You do a little, I'll do all of the rest of the work. That's a special chesed of tshuva. That not only does Hashem accept our tshuva, not only can we eradicate averas that are powerful, terrible sins, not only is Hashem willing to eliminate it as if it never happened, but Hashem will help us along the way. If we take one step forward, Hashem says, I'll do the rest, there'll be wind in your sails, you'll make it, I'll arrange for it to happen. That level of chesed, he was being denied. He's being denied because after what he did, after the wickedness that he engaged in, he lost that special Seat Rishmaya. However, it says in Mashah these words, Ein Dover Omei Bifnea Tshuva. There is nothing, nothing that stands in front of Tshuva. The Rambam brings that halacha. The Gemara brings it. It is accepted that there is nothing that prevents Tshuva. Even if a person did the worst of errors in the world, it on purpose, there is nothing that prevents him from returning. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes more difficult. But Elisha ibn Avuya, had he reached, reached down to the core of his essence, would have been able to climb that mountain, would have been able to do tshuva. Granted, he would not have had the divine assistance that we typically had, have, but he could have done it. And the lesson to learn from this, I believe, is a very, very powerful one and very, very significant. And that is, there is no human being that we know that will ever, ever reach the depths of an Elisha ibn Avuya. And the only one who wants to let us think that we're really so bad and so dirty and so nasty is the Satan, is the Yitzhara. Because the truth is, we have done things that are pretty, pretty serious. The fact is, if we did one Avera one time in our life, that's quite serious. But Hashem understands that. And when Hashem created us, Hashem created us with two natures, Yitzhatov and Yitzhara, and Hashem created us with various desires, various appetites, Hashem created us in a state and wants us to do one thing, grow, accomplish, change yourself, fight the fight. But Hashem is fully aware that we're going to win some and lose some. There's no fighter who ever wins every battle, connects with every punch, never gets hit. It doesn't exist and certainly hasn't existed till now. And because of that, Hashem created a system called tshuva. Tshuva is a system that if you think about it, does not make sense, cannot work. But it doesn't matter. Hashem Barachamim with total mercy created the system and allows it to function. It functions, it works, it's part of the world. But not only does it function, if you're on the worst level, you're an Elisha Benavuya, Ain Dover Ome Bifne Chuva, nothing stops you. But that's if you're an Elisha Benavuya. For the rest of us, we get tremendous amount of Seat Rashmaya, tremendous help. There's wind in our sails, there's a push from behind. Hashem says, take a little step. Just move forward, reach out for me, and I'll do the rest. How could you not take advantage of this? May Gadosh Baruch Hu grant us the wisdom, the understanding, the ability to put this into practice and to change ourselves for eternity. You've been listening to the four components to a complete teshuva from the Hilchus Teshuva Bootcamp. This is part seven of the Lost Art of Teshuva. This, as well as hundreds of other Shmooz audio, video, and articles are available on the Shmooz.com or on the Shmooz app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol Halashon 718-906-6461.